So that's Job chapter 3 on page 499, starting at verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden, stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There, the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There, the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Starting at Job 4, verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who, who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the uprights cut off? As I have seen, those who plough iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it, amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, 
Dread came upon me, and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence, then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die, and that's without wisdom? Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Surely vexation kills the fool, and jealousy slays the simple. I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gates, and there is no one to deliver them. The hungry eats his harvest, and he takes it even out of thorns, and the thirsty pants after his wealth. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upwards. I'd like to begin this talk with a public apology. Um, I've had several complaints made to me after the last set of talks uh, that I did in the book of Genesis. Several people have expressed their acute disappointment in the lack of illustrations from the Harry Potter corpus which I gather I pledged myself to several months ago. I've commissioned an independent review of myself, and I'd just like to say I'm deeply sorry for this oversight. Sometimes it's hard in my job to distinguish between conversations where I'm making Harry Potter references as a part of my work and when I'm doing it as a part of my social time. So again, I'd like to reiterate my apologies and commitment to do better starting today. Now, I'm a big fan of the fifth Harry Potter book, uh, The Order of... The Phoenix, um, the diehard fans like to rag on it, but I think it's rather good. And one of the reasons is because there's a sort of fascinating plot development between um, Harry and his headmaster, Professor Dumbledore. Up until this point, their relationship has been very close in uh, the books. Dumbledore is always there to provide support for Harry at the vital moments. But in book five, Dumbledore suddenly seems very distant, right, from the start of the book. And Harry goes through most of the book wondering why Dumbledore isn't speaking to him and, or really communicating with him at all. And he gets more and more angry with the situation, especially because he's ex he is facing opposition himself from every angle, uh, particularly from the vindictive Professor Umbridge. He's facing all sorts of injustices towards him. And he desperately wants Dumbledore to come on the scene and sort things out, explain what is going on and why he isn't talking to him. But Dumbledore remains aloof for chapter after chapter. We, the readers, can guess that, in fact, Dumbledore has some explanation for all of this. But Harry finds that difficult for here, for, uh, to hear. For him, it's very simple. Either Dumbledore needs to wade in and sort things out and quickly, or he must be losing his grip. It's got to be one or the other. And of course, as you read on through the book, you realize that sure enough, there was a very good reason why Dumbledore was avoiding Harry. But Harry couldn't see that at the time. 
Now, there's a sense in which the book of Job is a little bit like that. In the book of Job, um, which we started last week, last week was our first talk that Tim gave us. If you weren't here um, for our first talk, do go back and have a listen to it on our website. So far, what we've seen is that Job is a man who has faced great hardship and suffering in his life. But he simply can't understand why God would allow him to suffer as he has done, because he doesn't think that he's done anything to deserve it at all. Like Harry, Job gets more and more frustrated as we go through the book of Job, because he can't figure out what is going on. Why has God allowed him to suffer like this? And like Dumbledore, God seems to be aloof from it all throughout most of the book, at least. He comes on the scene at the end, but he doesn't seem to be giving any answers. And so Job just sits and stews about it for chapter after chapter. And the point of the book, the reason why we have it in the Bible, I think, is so that we can join Job as he wrestles with what is going on. It's a book that is all about suffering, but really underneath that, it's also a book that is all about wisdom or looking for answers, you might say. As Tim pointed out to us last week, the book isn't primarily answering the question of why there is suffering in the world and why God allows it. Other books in the Bible do say more about that question, but we're never given a nice, neat brochure that explains why any one piece of hardship um, befalls any one person at a particular time. Suffering doesn't come along with a little post-it note on it saying, oh, by the way, uh, these are the reasons why this is happening. It's not as if there's some table you can go and flick to at the back of the Bible when you get past the maps and things like that, which says, you know, if you, if you look at column X, which has suffering, and column Y, which has explanation, you can find your answer nice and neatly like that. Most of the time, we're not given those sorts of answers from God. Most of the time, we're in the same sort of situation as Job when we're facing hardship, of wondering what is going on, but not having an answer. So really, the book of Job is more focused on the question, what do we do when we don't have the answer to why I have suffered? Not quite so much, why does suffering, is suffering allowed by God, but what do we do when we don't have the answer to why we're suffering? And this is why it's such a helpful book for us to spend four weeks studying, I think. Some of us in the room are facing uh, acute hardship of one form or another at the moment. Some of us aren't at the moment, and life is fairly straightforward. But all of us will find that we have to wrestle with the questions sooner or later. Even if your life is fairly straightforward at the moment, it doesn't take much to begin to question what on earth God is up to as he runs our world. I'll give you a very minor example uh, from my own life. And this is a very minor example, that's the point. I remember as a student uh, walking around in flip-flops one day, and I stood on a particularly sharp stone, and it was very painful for an hour or so, and then I was fine. Um, not much suffering. I'd hardly suffered at all, in fact. But I nevertheless remember being quite rattled by the question of why God had allowed that to happen. It would have been very easy for him to have ensured that the stone was slightly to the left or slightly to the right, so that I didn't put my foot down on it. Surely that wouldn't have affected the rest of the universe much. You know, the whole butterfly effect, how you can't change something in case it kind of changes other things. But this surely wouldn't have changed anything at all if a stone was slightly to one side. Was God punishing me 
Had I been slightly more sinful that day than the day before? Why was that? Why had it happened? You know, not so sinful that my foot needed amputating or something like that, but, you know, not entirely sinless, such that just a little bit of pain was punishing me for something that I had done. Was that the reason? And if not that, well, why allow it to happen? Why allow this short blast of needless pain in my otherwise reasonably agreeable summer day? I was quite shaken by the question. It, was actually, it wasn't actually the pain that was the real problem, as I pointed out. That was extremely minor. It was a very, very, very minor piece of suffering. It was the questions that were difficult. It was the fact that I didn't know what God was doing. It didn't make sense with my view of God. And like Harry, because I didn't have a nice, neat, simple answer, that led me to question whether God had lost his grip or not. I don't know about you, but when I start to question ask those sorts of questions, everything starts to snowball very quickly, and I begin to wonder, well, you know, have the atheists got it right? Now, in Job's case, the suffering, of course, is far, far worse, but it is still his wrestling with the questions that occupies most of the book, and in fact, the entire chunk of it that we're uh, covering in today's talk, of which we only looked at a kind of a snapshot in the readings. And I don't want to downplay Job's physical suffering in the slightest in the book, but if anything, it's the mental anguish of not having answers that he finds most distressing as the book goes on. How is he supposed to think about it all? What is he supposed to think about God and how God runs the world? What do you do when you don't have an answer to the question, why have I suffered? Well, last week, Tim took us through uh, the first bit, the opening two chapters. I'm just going to remind us what happened there because the opening scene is very important for understanding the rest of the book. So let's have it fresh in our minds. The book begins with us being thrown into this kind of heavenly scene where God is having a sort of a team meeting with the rest of the council of the heavenly host. Uh, the whole point is that we're getting to be a fly on the wall for a business meeting that is way beyond our pay grade and that we wouldn't normally get to see. If you came away from last week with all sorts of questions, that's sort of the point. We're not normally allowed to see this kind of insight. At no other point in scripture that I can think of do you get this sort of insight into how God runs the world at a kind of a high level. So everything about this meeting already messes with our view of God and how the world is run. What happens is that the sons of God, some kind of uh, angelic beings, come and present themselves uh, before the Lord. Already this is a strange thought to us that there might be some sort of heavenly host um, out there in a dimension that we don't really know much about. But even more astonishing is the discovery that one of those who joins the team meeting is Satan or the adversary as his name literally means. Instantly, the medieval folk idea of Satan with a pitchfork, sort of prodding people down in hell where it's all burning, is called into question. Actually, in this scene, Satan is one of those who ministers before God in his heavenly court. He has a job to do of some kind. He has a role as the adversary. It seems that his purpose is to challenge the things that God says and to test them to see if they are true. And you'll remember what happens from last week. God declares that Job is a blameless man. And Satan challenges him and says, well, how do you know that that's true? How do you know that Job isn't just a fair weather worshiper? How do you know that he doesn't just come to church when things are sunny? And so God allows Satan to test Job. Let's see if that's true or not. 
Satan subjects Job to horrendous ordeal where he loses everything, even his health. But when the test has run its course, God is proved in the right because Job still worships God and refuses to curse him for what has happened. Job is shown to be a blameless man, as God said in the beginning. Now, you should have a about a million questions at this point, of course. You know, what on earth is going on? Why does God care so much about proving this point to Satan? Why is that worth the suffering that Job has been subjected to? Why is Satan even allowed to be there in the first place? And we have no idea about any of those questions. Remember, we're only being given a very brief, fleeting, possibly frustrating insight into the heavenly court that normally no one is allowed to see, but no more than that. Because the point of the book isn't to kind of explain all that any further. We learn no more about the heavenly court scene. The sons of God and Satan don't reappear again in the rest of the story. Instead, what happens for a whopping 40 more chapters is that we join Job at his level as he tries to make sense of everything that has happened. Most of the book is about how Job responds to the suffering that he has received from God's hand, how he wrestles with all the questions that it brings up. Now, he began on the right tracks in chapters one and two, of course. He understands that it is the Lord's right to give and take away as he sees fit. He refuses to curse um, God and take his own life, as his wife suggests. And he, rem- he maintains his in- integrity on that throughout the whole book, I think, as far as I can see as we read on. But that hardly ties everything up neatly, does it? You know, it's not exactly a satisfactory resolution when you get to the end of chapter two. We, the readers, have had an insight into what is going on in the heavenly realms, and we're struggling to get our heads around it. But Job has no idea of any of that. He's not sitting there thinking to himself, well, my family has all been killed, and my livelihood has been destroyed, and my health is deteriorating all of a sudden. Well, that must mean that God is trying to prove a point to Satan in the heavenly realms, and that's all fine, and we can get on with our lives. All he sees is that everything that he had is now gone all of a sudden, and he's sitting in sackcloth and ashes, scraping his skin with a piece of pottery. That's not really any kind of resolution, is it? Job has no idea why he suffered. So how does he process it all? What is he supposed to think And that's why from chapter 3 onwards, we join Job in his suffering and we walk through it with him for chapters and chapters as he tries to figure it all out, what's going on, and process it intellectually and emotionally. There's a sense in which we're not really doing the book justice just by giving a snapshot this week. And I would encourage you to go through and read the following chapters this week in your own time and see how Job has to wrestle through all this. And that's helpful for us, isn't it? Because most of the time, we don't get any insight into the heavenly realm sort of stuff at the start. Most of the time, we see it all from Job's point of view as well. When everything turns to mess and chaos and disaster in your life, and you don't know why, how do you make sense of it all? How do you react to God? Well, that's what this book is really all about. What do you do when you don't have the answer to the question? Why have I suffered? 
Now, to help us with that, we're introduced to Job's three friends who come to visit him at the end of chapter two. Most of the book um, revolves around the discussion that Job has with these three friends about why he is suffering. It's not just Job wrestling through this on his own. He's doing it in conversation with three of his friends. Um, Remember that none of them have been a fly on the wall for what we've seen in chapters one and two. They're just trying to piece things together um, based on their own life philosophies. Now, they are genuine friends um, with him. We learn at the end of chapter two that they come to uh, comfort Job and they're willing to sit in silence with him for a week and tear their clothes and sit with him in his suffering. Only a real friend is willing to do that. But they are also there to provide counsel as well. Because as we've said, that's what the book of Job is really about. And the key thing is that we need to understand about Job's friends is that they are caring, honest, sincere, well-meaning, courageous, and wrong. Their counsel that they give Job is consistently wrong. Well-intentioned, certainly, they're genuine friends, but wrong. And you can probably tell all this as you read through the book, but it's made unambiguous at the end, as we'll see, because God himself says that they were wrong about what they said. And the reason that they are wrong is because they think that they know the answer to the question of why Job is suffering. And it's very simple. It's a very simple answer. Like Harry, they can only jump to answers that are wrong because they're too simplistic. It's a very stylized discussion Um, As we'll see, Job speaks, and then the first friend speaks, and then Job responds, and then the second friend speaks, and then Job responds, and then the third friend speaks, and so on and so on. They do that for a couple of cycles, and they kind of go round and round. I put a a table on your handout, which gives you the sort of rough structure of the overall books. You can uh, see how that kind of conversation um, goes together. Apologies that it sort of bled onto most of the handout. That wasn't Uh, quite what I intended. I meant to leave you more space to write your notes. We'll blame Anson uh, for that, who did the printing, even though I gave him uh, very vague instructions, so probably my fault. Anyway, um, the point of the discussion is that he sort of goes round and round in cycles with his friends on this issue, because Job knows that they can't be right in what they say, but he doesn't have the answers either, and so they sort of go round and round and round until they eventually reach an impasse and can't go any further. Now, Job is the first one who speaks, and he begins by doing what I suspect most of us would be inclined to do when we face great hardship unexpectedly. He laments the day that he was born. Let me read verses, chapter 3, verses 11 to um, 19 again, if you want to follow along on page 500. Why did I not die at birth, come out of the womb and expire Why did the knees receive me, or why did the breasts that I should nurse? From then, for then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept, then I would have been at rest, with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden, stillborn child, as infants who never see the light, There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Surely with suffering this bad, it would be better if I'd never been born. 
What's the point in living if this is what I have received? That's what Job's saying. Many of us can probably relate to this on some level. We can probably look back to some moment in our lives when tragedy has struck, or anxiety, or stress, or acute disappointment, and the thought crosses our minds, perhaps it would be better if we'd just never been born. Perhaps it would be better to have died quietly at birth, and then we'd never have had to go through all of this. Now, Job isn't going back on what he said in chapters 1 and 2. He understands that the Lord gives and that the Lord takes away. And he isn't now cursing God. But that just doesn't make the suffering magically go away. And he's overcome with grief as a first emotion and does what anyone would do, I suspect, and wishes that he had never been born at all. Surely no life is better than such a miserable life. But then Eliphaz, the first friend, speaks, and he's not quite happy with Job's lament because he thinks that Job is implying that he is suffering innocently. Job implies that what he is suffering is not his fault by his lament. But Eliphaz thinks that can't possibly be right. Let me read chapters, chapter 4, verses 1 to 9 from Eliphaz again. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed." You see, Job, here's the deal. We can sit with you and we can cry with you for a time. But now it's time to talk because you need to wake up and smell the coffee. The world isn't a random place. We are not in a universe with atoms just swirling around in chaos that bump into one another by chance and things happen. We live in a world of meaning and of purpose because we live in a world that is ruled over by a great and transcendent God. And so there is no such thing as bad luck, says Eliphaz. There is only whatever God wills. We know this, Job, verse 6. Is not your fear of God your confidence? By which he means, surely you're confident that God is in charge of the universe and you rightly fear him for it? You agree with me, Job. You have the right fear of the Lord. You know that he is sovereignly in charge of everything. Well, you connect the dots together then. Things don't happen accidentally if God is in charge. They happen for a reason. Suffering doesn't just happen by accident. God declares that it should happen or allows it to happen. And so, Job, if you suffered, the answer may be tough. But it is also simple, and you need to hear it. You connect the dots together, Job. And you might be thinking... 
Well, Eliphaz has got a point, hasn't he? If you believe in the God of the Bible, then you agree with him that the universe isn't random at heart. You agree that God basically is in control of the universe and oversees everything that happens. Eliphaz is actually a much better theologian than some wings of the church have been historically. Sometimes professing Christians have ended up thinking that God sort of isn't in control of the universe. They look at the chaos in the world around and conclude that maybe God wishes that it wasn't like that. But for reasons that we don't fully know, his hands are tied uh, behind his back. But as we turn over page one of the Bible, it's crystal clear that that's not the case. A Christian view of God is that he is the author and the beginning of everything, that he made the heavens and the earth, and that he has total authority and sovereignty over them. We've just done a sermon series in Genesis recently. Uh, If you weren't here for that, do go back and have a listen to it on the website, because what we saw, part of what we saw, is that God has authority from start to finish. He doesn't compete with anybody or anything. Everything happens according to his will. Whatever else we think about God, we have to fit it around the idea that he has absolute transcendent authority. It's axiomatic about God. It's absolutely central. You know when you pack the boot of the car when you go on holiday, and you always have to get the big, massive suitcase in the boot first, and then you have to pack all the other things that you forgot to pack in the big suitcase in around. It doesn't work, does it, if you take the big suitcase out and put the other things in first, and then you can't cram it in. Well, God's authority over this world is a little bit like the big suitcase. That has to go in first, and then everything else has to be packed around that we know and think about God. If we ever get to a point where we leave that on the curbside, then something must have gone wrong with our understanding about God. Because page one of the Bible tells us that we have, he, we ha- he has absolute authority. And it's not as if he ever loses it as the Bible story goes on. Things in our world don't just happen randomly. So Eliphaz is right. He has a big view of God. He gets the God of the Bible right. He's read Genesis chapter one, or at least come to the same conclusions independently. He knows that God is in charge. And that's not the only thing that he gets right. He also knows that God is a God of justice as well. God is committed to doing the right thing. And so when people do the right thing, he commends them. And when they do the wrong thing, he holds them to account for it. He doesn't let evil go unpunished, and he doesn't get right, let righteousness go unrewarded. He is a just and fair God. That's how he runs the world. And as we read on through the speeches by Eliphaz and the other friends, they come back to this point again and again and again. Bildad begins his speech in chapter 8 by asking, does does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert what is right? And of course, the answer is no. If we believe in the God of the Bible, we have to agree with Eliphaz and the other friends. Again, he and Bildad and Zophar proved themselves to be better theologians than many. Ancient civilizations didn't believe that the gods that they believed in were necessarily just and fair gods. You know, they might have been some of the time, but they weren't all of the time. Think back to when you studied Greek or Roman mythology in school. The gods were forever backstabbing one another and sabotaging and that kind of thing. And again, many Christians can end up getting stuck on this one as well. As we read on through the Bible, we come across parts where God's actions don't seem to sit neatly with our own intuitive sense of right and wrong. You know, God seems inconsistent. Have you ever heard anybody said or thought it yourself that you read the New Testament and God seems one way and you read the Old Testament and he seems another way? 
we can get to this conclusion as well, that God isn't just and fair. He's sort of inconsistent like the pagan gods of old. But again, think back to our sermon series in Genesis. As we open up page one of the Bible and look at the world that God created, the first thing that we're told is that it is a good world. God made a good world and he delighted in it. We're told that he is a God who is committed to good things. And as we read on scripture, we see it time and again that God cares very deeply about right and wrong. He is deeply committed to justice. We said all this earlier in the service, didn't we? In the bit of liturgy that we read from Psalm 34. Here are some more lines from that psalm. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. So therefore, God's authority isn't the only big suitcase that has to go into the metaphorical boot of the car. His justice is another big suitcase that has to be packed beside it. Both of these two have to be put in first and other things can be fitted around the side. Whatever else we think about God, we have to make sure that these two key things and perhaps a few others are in place. That he is a God of absolute authority and a God who is deeply committed to justice and fairness and doing what is right. So Eliphaz has packed his boot right so far. He's got God's authority in and he's got his justice in. At first, it seems that Eliphaz's conclusion is irresistible. Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? If you suffered, Job, it must be because you've sinned somewhere and God is holding you to account for it. It makes sense. Scripture clearly says that God blesses the righteous and curses the wicked. And Scripture clearly says that he always has the authority to be able to carry that out. It isn't, it isn't as if there's another God trying to usurp him. If you're a maths fan, you could almost put this as a very basic equation, couldn't you? Righteousness plus God's justice and authority equals blessing. Sin plus God's justice and authority equals curse. So at first, it seems that Eliphaz's conclusions are impossible to refute. And furthermore, there's good news in all of this, Eliphaz thinks. He doesn't want to rub Job's face in it. He wants to help him out as well. And so as he goes on with his speech, he says, well, let me give you um, a little bit of advice. If you read on through, I won't um, reread it now, but you can go back and reread it again later if you want. In verses 8 to 22, he makes the point that because God is a just God, um, you're suffering because you've sinned somewhere, Job. But the good news is, is because he is just, if you turn back to him in humility and repentance, he will put things right and he will do good to you again. So in a funny sort of way, Job, this might all be for your good. Verse 17, blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. God wounds, but he also binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. Confess your sin, Job. Turn back to God, and it's all going to be okay, because God's justice means he'll put it all right for you again. And as far as Eliphaz is concerned, the book could probably end there. He dusts off his hands, job done or Job done, perhaps we should say. Glad that got at least a groan from a few of you. If Eliphaz were in charge of church life, my job would be very easy. Whoever is suffering most must be sinning the most. 
All I'd have to do is to identify who looks miserable and take them aside for a serious chat of some kind. Whoever's just had a pay rise, on the other hand, well, they must be doing fine with the Lord. When you begin to think of it in those terms, you can begin to start to see the cracks in what Eliphaz is saying, can't you? If Eliphaz were with me when I stepped on my sharp stone, he would have told me that it was all very simple. God was holding me to account for some minor sin of some kind. It's all simple and compelling, and it makes sense of Scripture, what Eliphaz is saying. But the problem is that it's wrong, because it's too simplistic. And this is one of the main reasons why we, the readers, were given that insight into the heavenly realms at the start of the book. Because we know that Job isn't suffering because he has sinned. In fact, it's the opposite. It's precisely because God was, Job was righteous that God allowed him to suffer. Not because God is unjust or, un, or not powerful. Eliphaz is still right about those things about God. But because of a very particular circumstance that Job doesn't know about. The problem is that Eliphaz's equation is too simple. Yes, God is powerful. Yes, God is committed to justice. But that doesn't always mean that in every situation he will punish evil immediately. Or he will reward, reward righteousness immediately. Because, and this is the key, there may be other reasons why he doesn't do that. There may be other factors at play that Eliphaz and his friends haven't thought about. It's not as simple as the righteous suffer and the wicked, uh, sorry, the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. Yes, God is all-powerful. Yes, he is committed to justice. But the equation that Eliphaz has in his mind, that equation is too simple. It fails to take into account that there may be other reasons why God allows suffering to happen. There's a sense in which the world would be a much more straightforward place if Eliphaz was entirely correct. Life is much more straightforward on the occasions when it does go the way that Eliphaz says. It would be very convenient if you were blessed every time you were sensible and caring and honest and cursed every time you were lazy and selfish and unkind. I'm constantly annoyed in the block of flats that we live in that other residents don't seem to make any attempt to put the correct rubbish in the correct bins. It would be great if every time I carefully put all the organic waste in the organic bin that an extra banana magically appears in my fruit bowl. And every time my neighbors just chuck it in with all the rest of the waste, all the pears in their fruit bowl just suddenly rot mysteriously. But it's not that simple. The world is much more complicated than that. And God may have a whole host of other reasons why he does or doesn't do things the way we expect. We, the readers, know that. Because on this occasion, we got an insight into another reason at the start of the book. Why God allowed Job to suffer. Now, this doesn't get us any further, of course, with Job's wrestling for answers that we get more and more of as we go through the book. So far, we haven't made much progress on how we ought to think about when suffering hits, but we have made progress in understanding about what we ought not to think. Suffering, or for that matter, blessing, aren't dished out by God for wickedness or righteousness in a simple like-for-like -like kind of way. It's not that simple. It may be the case, as with Job, that suffering has nothing to do with how good or bad we've been. There may be other reasons at play. And in fact, as we read on through the Bible, we'll see that that is a principle that becomes more and more important. 
Who knows whether the author of Job had any insight into this at this stage, but further down the line as we read through the Bible, we discover that God's salvation plan for the world involves the suffering of one who is innocent. If Eliphaz was right, there would be no place in the world for the innocent suffering of the Lord Jesus on our behalf to pay for our sins. And that's a helpful first base, isn't it? Is the Lord God a powerful God? Yes, he is. Is the Lord God just and righteous? Yes, he is. Does that mean that the righteous will get blessing back in equal measure or that the wicked will get punishment back in each equal measure straight away, nice and easily? No, not necessarily. It's not that simple. So if you're someone who's suffering or who's had to work through suffering, it's not because you're a worse person than everybody else. Sometimes God does use suffering to discipline us. Yes, we can read that in other parts of the Bible. But there may be other reasons at play that we just don't know about. Well, that's a sort of overview of what Job's friends have to say and how Job begins to argue with them. We focus on Eliphaz, but all of the others um, say much the same sort of thing. Go and have a read of the following chapters in the coming week, if you'd like to, and see how they kind of go around in circles. And we've begun to get clearer on what the answer isn't. But what should Job think about all of this? He knows that his friends can't be right, but he still doesn't know how to process it all properly. We'll come back next week, and we'll see if he gets any clearer in his thinking. Let's pray for now. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are a great and awesome and powerful and just God. Thank you that you rule the world with righteousness. Father, when the detail of our lives seems confusing, uh, especially when we suffer, please help us not to reach for answers that are too simple. Please help us to trust that you know what's going on, even if we can't make sense of it all. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.